Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to drop this episode into the React Roundup feed. This is an episode that we recorded a while back with Jordan Walk, who actually created React and worked at Facebook for a while. In fact, he just left Facebook. But uh, I thought it was interesting just to drop it in and talk about what they were working on the time with React and React Native. And it gives a little bit of background to some of that stuff. So if you're interested in that, uh, hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll be back with our panel next week. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 146 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Dave Smith. Hello. Jameson Dance. Hi, friends. AJ O'Neill. Yo. Yo, yo. Coming at you live from somewhere. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, from the stressful lands of JS Remote Conf. We also have two special guests. We have Christopher Shadow. Oh, nice. Yep. And Jordan Walk. Hi, how's it going? You want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Yeah, so my name is Christopher, and I'm on the React team. And for the, like, three months ago, I, I had this crazy idea of, like, doing a React JS conf. And then I spent like the last three months like just working on it. And I didn't do a lot of codes in the past month, but it's good now it's over. Yeah, and uh, and I'm Jordan and I work with Christopher and I'm on the React team. And both of us have been working on React Native in addition to Christopher working on the conference. There are so many native jokes I want to make about that. <laughs> <laughs> about React going native. Anyway, that's awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So uh, were there any big announcements at the conference? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, there was the React Native big announcement. So it lets you build applications that are on mobile and using native widgets, but using JavaScript and React. And the second one was GraphQL and Relay. This is an extension of Flux so that you can build all your data fetching pipeline right within your components. So you said that three months ago, you got the idea that you wanted to do a React conference. Yeah. Did you have any idea how much work it would be? Or were you just like, oh, I'll call some people and we'll like throw some event together? Yeah, so I didn't realize, but my, my manager was like, yes, it's a good idea, but know that you're not going to like do anything else but the conference. And I didn't believe it at the time, but now I do and he was right. But as soon as like he said yes and... Like I got help from like the entire Facebook like company, like from uh, legal, from uh, events, from like all of those. And they're really good at like making things happen. 
So I was there and it was fantastic. All the speakers were great. It just, it seemed like a really well-run conference. So your hard work paid off. Thanks. Yeah, there's one thing that I think I'm the only one doing for the conference was I scheduled rehearsals for every single speaker, even external ones. And I did it one week before. And I feel like it really helped like raise the quality of the talks. So if you're organizing a meetup or a conference, like I think this is a good advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome advice. It seems like it forces out the people that wait to do their talk until the night before. Yeah. yeah. They have to do it the yeah. night before rehearsals <laughs> instead of the night before the conference. Right. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and I really liked... Yeah, you guys had a really cool venue too. Yep. And one interesting thing about the venue is it's actually uh, the cafe uh, of Facebook. And like at first when we organized the conference, like we wanted to do something small and we found like the biggest room at Facebook. And it turns out that the demand was like insanely crazy. Like all the tickets were sold like instantly. And so we had to find a backup plan. And we basically like converted the entire cafe into best as we could. And I think it went well. Yeah. How did you get that really cool React logo behind the speaker? <laughs> well, we've got a, like a nice team of like special effects for conferences. And we just asked them like, can we get like some cool logo like on the stage? And they were like, yeah, sure. We're going to <laughs> like laser dice, like uh, the React logo and they put it there. And they they laser cut it? Yeah, laser yeah. cut it. Nice. And who gets to keep it after the conference? Uh, is, yeah, is it like hanging up in your apartment? Christopher kept it. <laughs> <laughs> Good call, it's Christopher. house just below a uh, poster of what would you do uh, if you weren't afraid. The so, iconic Facebook red print poster. Yeah. Well, all I have to say is if you're doing special effects next year, I want to see Iron Man at the conference. <laughs> yeah. Think about this. Pyrotechnics. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> well, so, my, only, my only complaint about the React conference was that I didn't get a ticket. No. Oh, <laughs> Many I'm so sad. I didn't either. So, Jordan, you were the you're kind of like the Steve Jobs for the React Native announcement. How did that? What? I mean, well, I actually didn't present. I didn't present anything. Uh, Tomo presented the React Native one. Oh uh, no, I'm confusing you. Yeah. With the magic of editing, this never happened. <laughs> <laughs> we're keeping it. We're keeping it. Crap. But Tomo did a good job, and I was really impressed with the delivery. But you were like the power behind the throne, like feeding in the lines then. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll say that. going on there. For our listeners who don't know, can you just tell us what is React Native? Give us a little more detail. From the beginning, React had always anticipated like being able to target multiple backends. And we've had some good experiments with Canvas or even some GL experiments, I believe. But the way React works is you program these modular components and they encapsulate everything that your component um, needs to worry about and doesn't leak much of those implementation details out of your component. And then at the end of um, a component event loop, what comes out of it is the set of mutations that need to be applied to the DOM or some backing tree structure. And so React has always anticipated being able to take this stream of updates and creates and moves and apply them to a different underlying, I guess, view hierarchy. And so all React Native does is it replaces the DOM manipulation with UI kit manipulation or Android view manipulation. And so by doing that, you're able to use the same APIs that you already know today for React and be able to build native applications on iOS and Android that feel native and authentic to the platform and perform well. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. So 
I've heard from a lot of people like, is this like PhoneGap? Is it running in a in a web view? And it's not, right? It's it's using the native rendering layer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's I'm glad you brought that up. There's no DOM involved at all. There's no WebKit, there's no phone gap, there's no web browser. It's just pure JS that powers purely native views. But it is running actually JS on the device itself. It's not like it's transpiling into or compiling into native code fully. That's yeah, that's correct. It's not transpiling it. It's using just JavaScript core. So can you like update the code on the fly? We have like a really rapid development cycle with React Native. So you can make code changes and, and refresh and reload without having to recompile everything. And that's really quick. So in that sense, yes. Awesome. Joe, it sounds like you're asking about pushing updates to the App Store, though. Is that what you meant? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, so do you have to go through the typical process of pushing every time you change code? You don't have to push it all the way through the App Store. So that's my understanding is that you do have to uh, go through the typical app update cycle that you would do with any other native app because it is a native app on the platform that you're targeting. When we're talking about rapidly reloading code, we're most interested in that really fast developer cycle so that you can get your app out there to the App Store much quicker. Interesting. But it's not going to load the JavaScript from the web or something? No, we're... We're not really interested in that. We're definitely more interested in, in the developer cycle because that's where the majority of your time is spent is, is getting developing this app, getting it stable and reloading constantly as you get there. I think that's the higher order bit. I'm still trying to get my head around this. So it's written in JavaScript, but it doesn't manipulate a DOM. It actually just manipulates the view. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. So um, if you look at what happens in React today for the web, You'll just see there's this part of the code where, you know, it runs a reconciler algorithm after your component does some state update, and it's about to make these mutations to the DOM. Well, it's a really nice kind of funnel where all these changes go through. And you can, instead of just manipulating the DOM, you can just send these update commands over to um, UIKit, which is uh, native code, for example. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And, so, and to be clear, there is a bunch of Objective-C code for iOS and Java code for Android that's powering this, you know, yes. kind of at a bootstrap layer, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. We have these wrappers around each of the view. But that's a lot of that's kind of impl implementation detail at this point, and it will change. The semantics of it are that, you know, when you create a capital V view in React uh, Native, that is going to instantiate some actual platform view that has all the platform accessibility on it that you would have has all the platform, I, I guess, look like feel, the, the yeah. look and feel in some cases. It has integration with their event system so that when you pull down the drawer from the top in iOS, you get touch cancels, stuff like that. So it's pretty clear to me that you're not going to take your web React code and just magically run it on your phone and have a native app now. But yeah, exactly. what about between uh, mobile platforms? Can I write an app for iOS and have it transfer over to Android and vice versa? Or do I have to still write two pieces of code for the two different platforms? So for this, like the idea is that you should only, like you should write like two separate code base because we, we're not into like the write once run anywhere, but we're into, into the learn once run anywhere. But we actually want like to make this progression from writing it in, in one platform, like for iOS, and then porting it to Android. So our current thinking with this is, uh, if you write an app using React Native for iOS, and you run it in Android, it's going to work, like it's going to run and compile. But every 
native component that's from iOS. We're going to have like a polyfill for Android that's barely working and just and red and like don't use it. And then like our current thinking is now that you've got like this base thing that's kind of working, then you can start like tr- changing all the iOS native components to Android and make sure like the look and feel is correct and like it looks like an Android app. Right. So it's not going to be like a one-click process. You've got an Android app, but like with enough effort, you're going to be able to like convert the app, making it look and feel great without having to rewrite the entire app. Right. And a, and a couple of other things I'd add is people actually don't want to write once and run anywhere. They want to redesign their app for each platform. And that's a good thing. And now we're even starting to see that even within one single platform, you don't just want to write one app and then run the same app on iOS or on an iPhone 6 Plus and then an iPhone 6 because the screen dimensions are different and you want to utilize that space differently. So that's not even something that's highly desirable, to be honest. And so we don't want to really commit to doing that. And we want to focus on doing other things well. That being said, so even though we've told people this is a learn once, write anywhere, people still will misconstrue that. And, you know, we've seen this blog post that was about, you know, you're never going to be able to, to write once and run anywhere. And, and we explicitly said that we didn't want to do that. And so I think it's appropriate to kind of um, <laughs> set expectations this way, because no matter what, people are going to, to like, you know, I guess, claim that you're promising to do something more grandiose than you're actually trying to do. So I think this is an appropriate way to kind of like message the project. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand. I'm going to be able to write a web app and take the same code <laughs> and run it on the Android phone and on iOS. Am I getting it? Because I'm, I'm just about to publish my blog article right now. <laughs> I already button. tweeted that. You know, and, and I like the approach because people aren't going to be pissed at you, Dave. They're going to be pissed at Facebook. <laughs> By the way, I was penning the term when I heard the announcement, trisomorphic. There and I was like, go. totally oh, wrong. Dear. Totally wrong. <laughs> so I heard a rumor that the announcement of React Native kind of happened last minute. You've been working on it for a long time, but you just decided a couple of weeks ago to open source it and announce it right now. Is that true? That's correct. So we've been working on it for like a year and a half. Like the first hackathon where we tried it was a year and a half. And then like we've got like many different like projects that came in and came out. And like three weeks ago, like we were like... <laughs> React.js Conf is like the best venue to open source this. And we cannot not like do yeah. it. And we wanted to, to open source it like since the very beginning. But like in three weeks, you're not able like to do a proper open source release. Like it's not enough time. Right. And so what we decided to do was we were not ready yet to open source it like for real to everybody. So what we did was to like make a private repo where we can like show something like to a few people and then get our house in order and like in a few months like when we think we're ready then we're going to do to open it to everybody so it really sucks to be in this kind of like position where it's half open source half not but this was the best spread up that we found yeah it it was either that or not share it with anybody and um, if there was a set of people that were going to be really gracious with us and helpful it would be the people who attended react conf so we decided to open it up to those people just to start with because we would, you know, we'd likely benefit from their help and feedback the most. So, so I'm, I'm curious, what's the benefit of not open sourcing it? Like you say that it's kind of a, you know, you want to make sure it's done right. Yeah. 
what does that mean? Like, cause, so, cause what I hear in the open source is release early and often. Yeah. So right, right now, for example, we have a script that takes, uh, our files from like Facebook and exports them to the open source. But we have no way to like take pull requests or like do it like commit by commit or basically like we don't have any way to get pull requests from people and to push our updates to people. So like it really sucks for an open source project to be like a one time code drop. So we are like heavily working on tooling for this, for example. So yes, like, that's, it's, that's, it's not, that's something you could, not something you could put in GitHub? Well, we are at a very large organization. And like you said, we've actually been using this for a while. Mm-hmm. So um, we depend on this for real apps, right? And we don't really like to just open source stuff that we don't feel confident in. And so if we're, I mean, sometimes we might if we want to enlist some help. But so the, the downside of that is that we depend on this for, for things internally and real apps that we're building. That's going to add some unnecessary friction. And we don't want to cause any sort of trouble to the teams that depend on it internally either. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, so putting things on GitHub, if that was GitHub first all along, that might have caused some trouble for them. And so so I guess you see the trade-off of open sourcing things that are actually used in production yeah. by a company that actually, you know, serves billions of people. It's it's a lot more difficult than like a small hobby project for sure. Mm-hmm. And also we have got a lot of dependencies from like all the Facebook iOS stack. So for example, we use before we open source, we used uh, the Facebook image component that decodes images of thread. Same for the text rendering, we use the Facebook one. And they have like very deep dependencies of like the entire Facebook stack. So it was some work required to like extract all of those dependencies and make sure like they are being like you can use them without the Facebook stack. Okay, so let me try and summarize this to make sure I understand. You instead of just throwing out everything that you had onto GitHub because it has so many dependencies to private code and is used by all these teams in your internal source control repos and stuff like that. You kind of went through one time to manually pull out the Facebook specific stuff. Yeah. And that's why this is the code drop and you're not going to be building off of what you shared with people. You're showing it to them while you prepare the rest of it. Yeah. And so okay. that makes in, the sense. Few, in the next few, few weeks, we're going to like clean up like all the other stuff that we have and one by one, like port them to the open source. And our goal is that at some point in the future, we're going to internally use the same code base as the open source one. So, so we would be GitHub first, yeah. even for internal use. We're just not there yet. And it takes a while to get there internally. That makes a lot of sense. I had some, this, some of the same concerns as AJ before. We're just like, why don't you just make it all open source? But I can, I can see yeah. that. So I have a question for you about specifically iOS. Uh, does Apple have a problem with apps written and published to the App Store in this way? Or are they good to go? I have no idea and I really shouldn't comment on that. But I do know there's tons of apps out there that do use a JavaScript engine to power it, even without a DOM. So yeah, yeah. you could probably just Google around and see what apps do use JavaScript. And also, like, we submitted the Groups app, the Facebook one, using uh, React Native to the App Store, and it went through. So, And, and you know, uh, Apple has provided a really awesome JavaScript yeah. engine in iOS 7, and that's just a, a standard SDK that you can build apps on. So this is encouraged in that way, and I'm really impressed with the quality of that of JavaScript core. It's served us very well, and I think it's a, it's a tremendous engineering feat how well that performs. So one of the things that I really enjoyed, Christopher, in your talk was your section about CSS, um, which, you know, traditionally CSS is not part of a native application development at all. 
Can you talk about what you did there? Yeah. So one thing we realized at Facebook from people coming from web and going to iOS is that in order to do any kind of layout, you're basically back to manual mode. So you're back to position absolutely everything. And this is like a lot of work, like pages and pages of math. And especially with the like slow uh, build compile step, like, and people like were very, very frustrated. And so what we wanted uh, for React Native is to take the best of both worlds. So on iOS, like we've got like the performance, we've got the native components, but on the web, we've got like the fast iteration cycle and we've got the CSS and the layout. And so one part of the layout, which is super important is Flexbox. And if you've never tried Flexbox, like you should like start now. It's that good. Uh, but, but we had an issue, which is that there is no Flexbox implementation in, in native and extracting it from like the browser is really complicated. So I just re-implemented Flexbox. And so the great thing with this is that we can now use Flexbox inside of a React Native to build native apps. Wow, that's kind of crazy. Was that hard to implement? Actually, it wasn't that hard. And the way it works is the interface is super simple. So you get a tree of styles. So for example, like your dumb, like your tree of nodes and with margin padding and all of this. And it outputs a tree uh, with the same shape, but the values are top, left, width, and height for every single component. And so in order to implement this, what I did was I took this tree as inputs and I created real DOM nodes with real styles and I gave them to the browser. And then from the browser, I asked what is the top left width and height of every single element. And using this setup, I was able to make sure that my implementation was giving the same result as the browser. And so then in TDD style, I was able like to like add new features and see what breaks and and in about two weeks I was able to reproduce like the features of Flexbox I wanted. So once this was set up, like it was super fast. Christopher, I thought your testing approach for developing this was really novel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I can test against the browser, and one cool thing is at some point I didn't know like what where my implementation was failing. And so what I did was to generate random like trees and pass it to my implementation and the browser. And the great thing with this is now I have a bunch of random tests and some of them are going to fail. And so I pick the first one that fails. I reduce it to make it easier to reason about. And then I debug and then I implement it and fix it. And I do the same. I take the first one and I debug it, fix it, take the first one. And at some point, there would be no failing test. And so at this point, I was like pretty confident that my implementation was working for all of the attributes I was supporting. And so I added one, one new attribute and then I did the same. And that's it. So cool. But yeah, this is a good example of how you can use TDD like some specific use cases and it's working like very, very well. Did you just laugh maniacally to yourself when you thought about that? <laughs> How am I going to do this? <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, the, the crazy part about this is at some point, like we, I, I did working in JS, but we wanted it in C. 
And so I started like doing a part of, of it in C because like I didn't use any, uh, I didn't do any dynamic allocations or use any j- fancy JavaScript features. So the code looked like C. And when I got my port, my C port running, I compared like the two versions. I was like, whoa, there's really similar. And so what I did was to use uh, some regexes in order to convert from one to the other. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And I wouldn't recommend like using regex to do like this kind of things, but in this case, it's worked pretty well. And we also transpiled the test. And so we got like a Flexbox implementation that's browser compliant with the browser in C. And when we started the Java port, like someone just like took my regexes, like they modified it for it being Java compliant and we got the Java version working as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. So I think yeah, what you're, what you're saying is you now have trisomorphic C to JavaScript to Java. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Powered by regular expressions. Yeah. And that's a separate project that you can check out as well. And I think it's a really cool artifact of the project because it's a nice little self-contained implementation of Flexbox that you can run in any C code out there. Maybe you can integrate it in a game engine if you have like a menu screen or something like that. Um, it's really cool. Now, to be clear, you're talking about the ported Flexbox implementation, not the regular expressions used to uh, yes. generate the yes. code, right? I'd yeah, like I mean, to see those. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can go to github.com yeah. slash Facebook slash CSS dash layout. Yeah. So it's a pretty cool technique that you did. Unfortunately, nobody on the show really cares much for testing our TDD. <laughs> that was Joe's just joking. kidding. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about the ongoing work to make React Native fully um, open source. Mm. What else is going on besides that? I mean, I'm sure you're still working on it beyond just to, I mean, to enhance it, not just to open it up. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah. So um, I think the there's a few areas that I would like to see focused on. And I would also love to see the community help out with this too. Um, We'd like to get good documentation for and a very solid API formed for the gesture stuff. So gestures are really complicated on mobile. And it's something I feel the web has really kind of punted on. And so we want to not make that same mistake. And we want to make sure that you can build components that are modular and that also feel very natural when you use them, authentic to the platform. And it's really as simple as not misinterpreting a tap, for example. And so we want to get that API really solid and well-documented. And when we come out the gate with React Native, we want people to start building apps that have these gestures integrated all throughout them from day one. And it's one of those things where I feel like if the precedent isn't set correctly, it could, I think it'll it'll make React Native apps I don't know. I think they're going to end up feeling like the web if, if people don't use gestures from day one. And that's kind of controversial because some people think, oh, there's nothing wrong with web gestures. But I think it, the difference is really clear to me. Yeah. So one interesting fact about this is if you read on the internet why a web app sucks, everybody's going to say like it's because of performance. And this is true, like performance is really bad, but it's been improving a lot on the web. But... With React Native, we got like 60 FPS like from day one, just by using like iOS native components instead of the of the DOM, like an off-thread image decoder, for example. Yeah. But now, like when we prototype with those, like the app still felt like shit because we were using like the same paradigms for gestures at the web. And so Jordan, 
re-implemented like all the iOS uh, gesture system within React. And now we like we need to promote it and make sure like developers understand that this is one of the fundamental things that they need to get right in order to do native apps. Right. Well, we yeah we implemented a um, like a subset of the features, which is enough to build a you know a wide variety of applications and interactions. But there's still more to do, and we want to vet that, and we want to document it well, and we want to go through all the edge cases and make sure that it's really solid. So. I haven't done any iOS development and I only know about gestures from a user perspective. I mean, it's tracking when the person taps and how their fingers move and how many fingers are moving, right? Can you talk a little bit more about why that's so hard to do on the web? Okay, so so I feel like getting one particular gesture, um, like let's say like a pinch or a, a two-finger drag, that's actually not that hard. It's just simple math. But I think the, the harder part to get right is the API and the integration of that API to do gesture handoff. So where one, um, one part of your application is interpreting a gesture and it gets to decide whether or not another part of your application can also handle that same gesture and what happens when that handoff occurs. Some kind of visual feedback is almost always given to the user to say, oh, that button is no longer active because some other part of the application is now taking control of that. So that's something that's missing on the web. Standard touch events aren't sufficient to even implement that, even if you're diligent. So you need something else to be able to do that. Does that make sense? Maybe you want to do, talk about the example where you scroll and tap. Okay, so, so one, one really common example that the web always gets wrong or often gets wrong is if you're in a scroll view and the scroll view is actively moving because it has some kind of momentum and then you stop the scroll view and you don't move your finger, you just stop it. A lot of times on the web, the button that you happen to stop the scroll view on will highlight and it's active and releasing your finger will cause some kind of like a, a redirect or a mutation. Now that's wrong because the user usually just wanted to stop the scroll view. And so there's, there's nothing there negotiating this at, I guess, a global or system level. And even if people do handle this correctly, they usually special case the scroll view. And so that really only works in a couple of cases. But what if people want to build their own scroll views or their own modals or their own, you know, transitioning scenes that also kind of have these characteristics where they do the right thing and you don't accidentally tap on a button you didn't intend to. So this is what a good gesture system will help you accomplish. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at reactroundup.com slash Raygun. So as someone who hasn't done native development, that just sounds like impossible and magical. I don't think I know what I'm missing. 
Like, of course you can't do that. Oh, that's fine. Well, I mean, you know, do you agree that when you use a native application, usually you don't accidentally tap on things? Oh, yeah. No, I agree with what you're saying that it feels a lot better. It's just as a purely web developer, it doesn't right. occur to me that I need to implement that stuff. Right. So I, I can see what you're saying, that it needs to be built into the platform better. And so we haven't talked about it too much, but we're going to like communicate a lot more on this subject like in the future. Right. So can we talk a little bit about debugging a running React Native app? Yep. So the debugging experience is the same as the web browser. So your JavaScript is, is running React, and we can debug like inside of Chrome and get all the Chrome developer tools and the React developer tools. So, and if you think about about it, like the bridge between JavaScript and Objective C or and or Java, this is the same as the bridge between the JavaScript environment and the browser. And have you ever tried like to step in through the browser, like on the web? Like no. And so this is like something that we like want to reproduce. And one consideration that we have is the native part should never crash. This means that if you give it like invalid input or anything, it should like give you like a, an error message or something, but it should not crash. This way, like you can reload the JavaScript without having to rebuild on everything. Right. We're not there yet. Just to yeah. <laughs> manage expectations. But in the same way that a browser is a native backend for, you know, what you're specifying in JavaScript, that's kind of what the React Native backend should also be. I realize it's, it's kind of confusing how, how we're talking about using Chrome to debug when we just said that we're using JavaScript core. But uh, so one of the things that was mentioned at, at React.js Comp was that we our communication between the JavaScript engine and the native backend is a completely uh, batched, asynchronous, serializable bridge. So what that enabled us was within you know a couple of hours, we could easily get Chrome debugging working because all we had to do was just run the JS in a completely different engine and communicate these serializable messages across Chrome using WebSockets into the React Native container as opposed to being communicated from JavaScript core into the React Native container. So, so you, that architecture made that pretty trivial. So are you saying that when you run in the debugger, it's actually Chrome's JavaScript engine that's executing all of the JavaScript? Well, so or that's is it still one, JavaScript yeah. core? Like, I'm a little confused about who's responsible yeah, so, for what. So that's the power of, of having a, an asynchronous serializable boundary there, and that being your only interface between JavaScript and the native container, is that it doesn't matter where your JavaScript is running. It could be running on a server in on the East Coast, and you're over here. It's just as long as you can serialize all the messages that go back and forth between the two, and as long as you're okay with it being asynchronous, then you can run that JS anywhere. Now, the most natural place to run it when you're running a production app is in the JavaScript core library that iOS gives you. But if you want to debug, you can easily run that JS in a Chrome process outside of your simulator even, and then just send the messages back and forth across WebSockets. So on iOS, I mean, Objective-C is running some of this code. And then is Objective-C the thing that's doing the serialization over to the bridge and back? Or is it, I'm not totally clear on all the parts there. Yeah, very, very little serialization. I mean, it's, it's really just taking, um, you know, a tree of NS arrays, NS objects, and just, uh, you know, creating a JSON string out of it. So one interesting thing from React is I feel like it has inspired a lot of good ideas in other frameworks. Is this something you'd like to see more of, especially with React Native? Do you think, I mean, would you like to see someday like an Angular Native or Ember Native or some new framework I haven't heard of Native? 
Oh yeah. Well, so I, I, everybody on the react team is super excited about learning from other frameworks. And then also like the ideas of react making their way into other frameworks as well. But, uh, as far as the native backends, we do think that react is particularly well suited to doing this type of thing, at least today, because it had always anticipated it. It had no real dependency on the DOM by design. And it also batches up its updates and the programming paradigm itself is very batchy as well. So if there is any other frameworks out there that have all these characteristics that React also has, then yeah, I'd be excited about that framework, like adopting the same sort of native backend that that we're having. But I do think that uh, it might be challenging unless they essentially are React or very, very close to React. So uh, a kind of related question is React Native. It sounds like it's important to Facebook Mm -hmm. internally. And you're open sourcing it because you want to share it with other people. But if someone submits a pull request that maybe the community likes that makes Facebook's job harder, how do you handle that conflict when you open source a tool that gets used internally and that you're building products off of? I don't see that happen a lot, to be honest. I mean, the whole reason why we even open source things that are kind of this far along is because we feel like the things that have helped Facebook actually do help open source. And and the um, true. With that? And the opposite is true. Yeah, and, and the opposite is true. Like if something didn't help us um, in our technology stack, it, it probably wouldn't help other people out outside of Facebook. So, I mean, I, I don't really see that many great examples. So if you have one in mind, though, yeah. I'd love to hear I don't. It. I'm just kind of thinking about doomsday scenarios. Right. Yeah. Where, where React Native 2.0 like totally changes everything and, yeah. and you fed it internally and then you just kind of drop it on the community. Yeah, we were super surprised with like React because like we were seeing that a Facebook use case and like external use case was like very different and we would see like very different things. But actually like React is supporting like many different use cases, but they all add up and they all make the React library better. So we got like a lot of open source contribution on React that helps indirectly or directly Facebook and the same like for Facebook that helped React. So it's actually like, I would say like a good sign out. It was a good synergy and we're going to see uh, with React Native, but I'm pretty sure it's going like to be the same. Yeah, I hope so. So uh, can you talk about the Git repository? I mean, you you offered private access, I think, to conference attendees, but uh, to coming the cool soon. Kids. Yeah, to the cool kids. Coming soon, there's going to be open access. Can you talk about that schedule a little bit? Yeah. So we're not sure yet about the schedule, but we need to get our house in order, like being able to take pull requests, being able to like push our code to the open source repo and being able to do like trivial things like running like your app on a device that we cannot do that right now. So as, as soon as like all of those like are working, like the bare minimum, then we're going to like turn it on to everybody. And we don't expect it to be, to take years. Like we really want this to happen as fast as possible. Yeah. Because the longer that we have this, you know, like, GitHub and internal versions, like that's actually painful for us. So the sooner we can actually get them on the same page, it benefits us. And then like, you know, like we were saying, it also benefits the community. Yeah, yeah these no, these no two... Hard dates. Oh, go ahead. No hard dates right now. Yeah, but... no hard dates. <laughs> I think the rule is if we make you submit a hard date, then next time a boss asks us at work, we have to give them a hard deadline too. <laughs> <laughs> so in the so, meantime, Jameson will be the only one writing React Native apps. <laughs> I love how the, deadlines are always just bad guesses, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about the differences in in keeping up with APIs and, and native platforms versus building what was a web framework before? 
it seems, I mean, stuff still changes on the web, but it changes a lot more gradually and, and it's more backwards compatible, I feel like. Yeah. So our stance with this is we want to make the APIs look as familiar as possible with uh, the web. So if you're using like React Native, all the APIs that talk to um, iOS, Android, like they should like look and feel like the web. And we've been inspired by uh, Mozilla web APIs that target like phones. And this is like, we want to make a good set of cores APIs like this that are going to like to probably be the same like across versions. And then we also want to make sure that React Native is extensible. This means that if tomorrow like iOS 9 introduces a new, a lot of new APIs, you can like write your own bindings of those APIs to uh, your JavaScript without having to wait for us. And I'm pretty sure that the community is going to like pick them up like pretty fast. And then when it's more solidified, like we're going to bring them into the core. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. So when a new iOS version comes out, people kind of just run out and wrap the new APIs yep. and then you'll let them solidify and pull them in. Yeah, that's I was thinking for now, like we haven't yet experienced one big thing like this. So we'll see when, when it happens. Yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that that's also an issue for current app developers when iOS upgrades to, or, you know, we get a new update to like iOS 9. Some of the older APIs might be deprecated. And in order to update your app to the newest OS, you have to kind of go make some changes in your code. Everybody kind of has to do this, you know, this dance in any event, really. Sure. Just hopefully you'll be able to make those changes faster. Yeah, I hope so. I have one more question. So I have a lot of friends who are native application developers and they're interested in React Native, but from a a very different perspective. Can you talk about, do you want React Native to be used by JavaScript developers that can now build iOS apps? Do you want it to be used by iOS developers? Is it everyone? Are you aiming towards a specific audience with that? Um, I actually think all of the above can benefit from building apps really quickly on top of React.js on React Native. And we've had native developers give us that feedback. Even though they're expert native developers, when they step into the React.js world, they can iterate really quickly and make design changes really quickly, rapid reload, all of that great stuff. But even if somebody's not as interested in that and they're a native developer and they're more interested in like you know the, the back-end view system and the lower-level details, they can think about React Native as a way for them to build these highly optimized lower level building blocks that their skill set would be best at building and then expose that to a much wider set of developers. So their involvement can be that they get to share, I guess, the results of their expertise with tons more developers than they could otherwise. So it's, it's dividing up the roles of development into people who like are really good at uh, lower level programming in the native environment and kind of protecting that that lower level code from application developers who can easily step on them. Okay, that makes sense. So it might enable someone to be kind of like the architect that that builds the low level APIs, and then you can let people consume them. But you, more people can consume them now if you make this exactly. really solid iOS or Java component. Exactly. Cool. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Alrighty. AJ, do you have some picks for us? So I've got one off the top of my head. So I like name.com. 
because they've got a really clean interface. Like it's usually fairly simple to find like DNS settings or and I guess that's mostly what I deal with. But And their SSL service that they have is probably the simplest of any of them. And so I'm, I'm trying to not be a hypocrite and to, because I've been promoting uh, HTTPS a lot lately. So I'm converting over some of my sites and uh, it's just been a very simple process to use them. And I've, I've enjoyed it. So I'm going to pick uh, name.com and rapid SSL. Awesome. Jameson, what are your picks? I only have one pick. It's a video game called Darkest Dungeon. It just came out on Steam Early Access today. So it's brand new. It's a like a dungeon crawler, kind of turn-based, squad-based, RPG-ish game. But the atmosphere of the game is probably the best part. It kind of models the mental state of your party, which I think is a thing that lots of games forget. If you're like wandering through this dungeon and a skeleton pops up and tries to stab you, you'd probably get kind of scared. So your party has to deal with not only fighting through the dungeon, but they have to deal with like paranoid or rabies or I don't know. It's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's really well made too. It it feels really solid, even though it's technically still in early access. So that's my only pick. Also, it prepares me for like in case I ever have to go raid a dungeon by myself in real life too. There we go. Now you're set. Yep, I'm prepared. And you can reload your environment dynamically with React Dungeon. React Dungeon. Okay, that's coming was- soon. <laughs> All right. Capital R, capital D. That's right. Dave, what are your picks? I've got a few picks for you today. We'll see how, how many I give. The first one is, you know, React Conference just finished. For our listeners, it'll be last week that it finished, or I guess the week before. And I really enjoyed one of the talks there. I actually enjoyed almost all the talks. But one in particular that I wanted to pick today was the talk by Ryan Florence, a friend and neighbor, actually. And um, he gave a talk called Hype, where he gave about half a dozen or so demos of React. And one of the demos in particular, I think, was really cool. And it's an accessibility module for React that warns you about all the things you're doing wrong in your web app for accessibility and tells you how to fix them in real time, which is something that I think really illustrates how powerful React is as a framework because it gives you access to do all kinds of static validation before you know, things actually get rendered to the browser, which was really cool. So I highly recommend that talk. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. The other one is, as long as we're talking about React, uh, my company, HireView, has just open-sourced our first React component. It's called the HV React Calendar, and it's a fancy little calendar widget that's written in React and uh, is really cool. We're doing a lot of calendaring stuff recently on my team, and uh, there's going to be more of this. But um, I'll link that one as well. So if you need a calendar app or a calendar widget in your web app and you're using React, this might work for you. Uh, those are my picks for today. Ooh. I'm just going to second that accessibility module that Ryan made. I've always heard about accessibility and felt guilty and then was just like, well, I don't know what to do. And this tells you what to do. You just drop it in your app and it's, it's pretty awesome. It makes it easy. Yeah. And one of the great things about React Native is we really care about accessibility and all the core components that you use they're accessible by default so you should like speed up the like the accessibility reach like very easily awesome joe what are your picks so i've got two picks today i was recently in the san francisco bay area for a particular conference which shall not be named all right it was react conf you're talking about <laughs> so I had some time to do a little touristy stuff, went down to San Francisco, had enough time to go have lunch and thought, I'm going to go down to the wharf and get me some yummy seafood. 
When I was down there, I walked by this old World War II submarine museum that I had never noticed before, even though I've been there several times. It's kind of off to the side by Pier 39, and it's called the U.S. Pampanito. So if you are ever in the Bay Area and have a short amount of time, they have it, you could just walk on, there's a little fee, and you can take an audio tour that takes about half an hour. And it was super cool, narrated by people who were actually on the Pampanito during World War II, or at least stories by them, in addition to the narration. And it was really, really awesome. Very interesting. My daughter and I went on it and just had an awesome time. So that's going to be my first pick. And my second pick is going to be the author Brandon Sanderson. I've recently been on a Brandon Sanderson kick, read his latest published novel, the second in the Reckoners series called Firefight, which was awesome, as usual. And I read a bunch of his shorter novellas, and now I'm reading his, like, Way of Kings, which is like 18 novels long, all wrapped into one novel. Good book. Yeah, so I heard I heard that uh, there's something that he was going to name the second book, uh, something that was actually in the story, which is like called the book with no end or something like that. And his publishers refused. I can't remember exactly what it was, but his publishers refused because the books are so dang long to have the book name of the book <laughs> be the book without an end. And it was actually this, you know, way long, like 800-page book. It was going to be bad for sales. <laughs> a never-ending story. <laughs> yeah. But I absolutely love Brandon Sanderson, and I truly feel like he is the most talented fantasy sci-fi author that's publishing today. So that's going to be my second final pick. That's awesome. All right. I've got a whole bunch of picks. Um, maybe I'll save some for next week. But first off, uh, I got an iPad Mini 3, and I am really, really liking it. The retina screen super nice. And the other thing is, is that my iPhone 5 just isn't quite the right size for me to do some of the task management and stuff that I need to do. And the other thing is, is that it's a nice big screen with a nice long lived battery in it. So um, I can play podcasts and stuff. It just makes it work. And so I, uh, I have it paired with a Bluetooth speaker and I just listen to my podcasts. My other pick is there's an OtterBox case that I picked up called the OtterBox Defender Series. And it's a pretty heavy duty case, but, you know, they pretty much guarantee it against all kinds of abuse, including spills. I think I read somewhere that people had actually taken a, their iPhone case anyway. They, they'd actually taken their iPhone in the water with them swimming and stuff. It's good up to a meter or something. So, I mean, it's pretty wild. But the thing that's really cool is it has two pieces to it. And the first part is the part that wraps around your iPad. And the second part is the cover that you put over the screen when you're traveling with it. But inside of it, there's this little clip that you can fold out. And then there are like three or four different ways that you can put your iPad on it so that it props it up. And I really like that too. So I just can't say enough about that case. It's the OtterBox Defender series on that one. And then for JS Remote Conf, I'm actually using a system called ClickWebinar. It has a couple of issues from what I can tell with the Mac. If you want to share screens on the Mac, you can't be using Yosemite. I think it's just a matter of them updating the software that allows you to do that. And it, if you try and upload keynote slides, apparently it has issues with that. But you, you can export it to PDF or PowerPoint and it takes those just fine. But it has a bunch of really cool features where it'll show the speaker if they have their camera turned on and, you know, then they can obviously talk. The majority of the screen is taken up by the slides, but you can also share your screen or you can do uh, YouTube videos or you can just open up the whiteboard and start drawing. And it has a chat room built in. It's pretty awesome. Uh, the only other thing that I don't love about it is that it's all in Flash. 
So it's awesome. And it's a, the best thing I've found so far that works for pretty much everybody on every platform, but it does have those couple of issues. So if you're looking to do an event, it's awesome, but it's, it does have those things going, not going for it. And finally, I'm going to put a landing page up for this today, but I had the idea and I've gotten a lot of positive validation from people about putting up a mystery box or, you know, a subscription box that you get with stuff in it for developers. And so I'm just going with generic developer stuff right now. So, I mean, it'll be desk toys, T-shirts, books, all that kind of stuff. Uh, maybe some tech gizmos that are a little bit unique. You know, I'm, I'm looking at maybe doing an Arduino box or a, a Raspberry Pi box. And so you get the Raspberry Pi and a book on how to do stuff with it and all of the other things that you need in order to make it work like a power supply and a, an SD card with the operating system on it and, you know, a Bluetooth dongle or whatever, um, or maybe some uh, LEDs anyway. So I'm playing with some of those ideas. And so if you want to find out when I'm going to release it, the first release is only going to have a run of 50 boxes. And that's just for me to figure out logistics and stuff and, and how much work it's going to be to put it out on a regular basis, depending on how many people subscribe. So if you want to get that limited run, go to devboxclub.com and uh, sign up with your email address. Then I'll let you know when you can actually go in and sign up to pay. So those are my picks. Christopher, what are your picks? So the first one is ESLint. And uh, at Facebook, we really believe in like tools that helps you like write bug, uh, like write code that's bug free. And one of them is static analysis. And ESLint like is really wonderful because so it first runs all uh, the parsing step and everything on your code and gives you the AST. And then from this AST, you can write custom rules. And this is like so easy to add a new rule. So for example, if you, like one rule that I added recently is you should ne never use set timeout without like clearing the timeout somehow. And I just made a small rule that says if you use set timeout inside of a React component, then it's just going to warn at you saying, oh, you should not use this. You should use a timer mixing that handles like clearing for free. Hmm. And I highly recommend it. So the second one is uh, React Nexus. So this is a project that has a lot and lot and lot of features. Like this is like a, the biggest framework you can imagine. And it has like, uh, inline styles, all, everything is ES6. It has like isomorphic. It runs flux on the server, like using a WebSocket, like real time. Like this is like, there's a lot of good stuff in this. And I really want to like highlight it because it should be more known. And the last one is botbot.me. So for React.js on IRC, I run a script for like six months that set up a IRC uh, bot and set up a JS fiddle to like show the logs, but like it kept going down and down and down. And the people at botbot.me, like in five seconds, set up a bot that's always up to date, always running without any hassle. And it's been really good. And the team is really nice. So if you need a bot for your IRC channel, like I highly recommend them. That's it for me. So my picks are, well, they're always Vim related and that's not going to change this time. And that's so, unfortunate. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's amazing. Dave and I are <laughs> on the edge of our seats now. So uh, a friend of mine named Tay, he started this project called VimR, which is really cool because it's super practical. What he did was he embedded MacVim inside of another Mac app in order to make a version of Vim that is truly Vim 
but also has a lot of cool GUI features like left navigation bar for the file system or, you know, a quick open dialogue for files. And he's doing a really good job of um, responding to feature requests and stuff. And I think it's a really cool project that has a lot of potential. So that's really cool. You guys should check that out. Uh, The other one was, well, I really like Vim modes and other editors, but I don't like Vim modes that aren't exactly the same as Vim. So what I really like is this, uh, this developer, Carlos D. Castillo on, on GitHub made a Vim mode for Atom that runs NeoVim in the background and communicates to NeoVim every time you hit any keystroke so that it gives you the exact experience of Vim inside of Atom. And now that's a really rough project because it just started, but I think it's the right approach and I'm really excited about it. Whoa, that sounds really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming. It was really a fascinating discussion and hopefully we've uh, encouraged some people to go check out React and React Native. Uh, We'll go ahead and wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.